Hebrews chapter 12 in your Bibles, please. Hebrews chapter 12. Of course, being in chapter 12, we're in that third major section of the book of Hebrews, which is, of course, more the practical exhortations um, and uh, dealing with what we've called that the principle, the superior principle of Christ, which really is what? What is that principle? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all right? The first couple, you know, the first two sections of Hebrews up through most of chapter 10 dealt with the person, superior person of Christ, then his superior priesthood, and of course makes sense, dealing with who he is and then what he has done, all right, on, for us, on our behalf, and now then the transition in, began in chapter 10, the second half of chapter 10, into this principle of faith in him. So the whole point is, because of who he is, because of what he's done, what we need to do is just run to him. We need to have faith in him. We need to trust him. We need, and it's all about him, all right? It's not about us. It's about him and, uh, and who he is and what he's done. And so this is uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we've seen several things. Of course, there's that transition there, that second half of chapter 10, and there's three exhortations given in that passage. I'm not sure if you remember what they are at this point, but three given in that passage, and they're very pertinent really to everything else in this last section of Hebrews. Of course, the first one says we should what? We should, it's in chapter 10, verse 19, well, this is actually in 22, I think, but... Uh, we should what? Draw near. I think Andy started to say it there. We should draw near. That's really okay. He's done all this. It's available. What should we do? We need to just draw near to him. We need to run to him. And then we should also hold fast. Of course, God expects us to have a steadfast faith in him. And then thirdly, we are to what? I think that would be in verse 24. Consider... Who? Consider one another, all right? So it's faith in Him and keeping our focus, keeping our eyes on Him as we live down here, but yet at the same time, we are to be looking out for one another. That word consider has the idea of being, uh, of paying attention to, all right? Looking after, that kind of an idea. So paying attention to one another, and the whole point is we are here to help others. That's, that's really what you could say that's all about, all right? And so really, in, uh, uh, then, then we saw that transition, then it kind of moved into chapter 11, which uh, obviously everybody remembers as being, you know, the, the chapter of faith, that uh, hall of faith, whatever uh, you want to call it, but a list of people that had gone before uh, who serve as examples of faith in God, all right? And really the whole point of that, though, as it's presented is what? If we remember what God has done in the past, it helps fortify us for the present and for the future, all right? And so, again, that's, that's kind of the purpose of that list there in, in uh, chapter 11. But then moves into chapter 12, and we see, I thought it was up there, but it's not, we see the greatest example, all right, which is who? The Lord Jesus himself, all right? As he came to this earth and he lived here as a man, he served as the greatest example of faith in God 
that we could ever look to. All right, and so that's in chapter 12 there. We're to be looking unto him. Of course, as we're doing that, we're, we're uh, laying aside things that hinder us. We're uh, putting away sin. And uh, he is our uh, direct object. And then we saw also the direction of our faith, which it, that's that passage that deals with chastisement. And of course, that's where, uh, if you want to say, the things that go on in our day-to-day lives make a difference, right? And the big difference between someone who's saved versus someone who's not saved, according to that passage, is what? I haven't asked you that that way before, but think about it. It's a passage about chastisement, and it tells us who is chastised by God. His, His children. Right? So the big difference between an unsaved person and a saved person in light of that passage is what? A saved person is being chastened by God. Now, again, that sounds like a negative. That sounds harsh. But as we talked about it there, that, that, the idea of chastening in that passage is not necessarily punitive. Right? It's not necessarily he's punishing us. And, and, and it's not that you have to sin in, as a Christian in order to be chastened. You don't have to do anything, so to speak, all right? I mean, because the point is, God is at work in His children's lives, no matter what they're doing. He's at work, all right? And so, that's one of the big reasons, by the way, why a Christian doesn't get away with sin. Because God is concerned for you, and He is at work in your life. If you're a child of His, He is actively involved in your life. Now, sometimes maybe that seems like, you know, we, we think maybe he's, uh, you know, there's a law, you know, in, in that seeming activity in our lives. But, you know, there's a lot of things about that that probably we don't see the big picture of and don't understand. But God is at work in his children's lives. And if God isn't doing something, doesn't seem to be doing something active in our lives, <laughs> we probably ought to be concerned about that, right? We should, all right? So, but the point is, if, if a person's saved, God's actively involved in his or her life. And that's, that's clear in that passage of Scripture, right? But this greatest example of faith, looking to the Lord Jesus, and the whole point of chastisement, that said, uh, how God works in a believer's life is what? How does it pertain to Christ and our faith in Him? The whole point is God is producing righteousness, holiness, or you could word it the way that Romans chapter 8 words it. He wants to make us Christ-like, all right? That's the whole point of that. He's not, uh, you know, salvation is not just being saved from hell. Salvation is God doing a work in your life so that you become what you should be. I mean, and, and obviously... In a way, that never fully happens in this life. It will fully happen, you know, be realized one day. But that is something that is ongoing in our lives now. We're to, you know, in other words, if you were saved, and, and it doesn't matter necessarily if you were saved a week ago, a year ago, a decade ago, a century ago. I don't think anybody here is that old. But, uh, well, I, never mind. <laughs> I was going to say, we're not, together, we're not even put together, but yeah, that is, sorry. Uh, uh, 
But uh, it doesn't matter how old you are. I got lost my train of thought there now. But uh, anyway, the point is, your life, pens are all over there, but your life should look like this. If this is when you were saved and this is now, there should be a trajectory. It might have some, you know, ups and downs. And if you have a normal life, it will have ups and downs. But there's a trajectory of God bringing you more and more and more and more into the likeness of Christ in your life. Again, it doesn't mean that you know, there's never a failure on your part. There's never a failure on God's part. But it doesn't mean there's never a failure on your part or a lack of faith in your part or a lapse of whatever. But the point is, there's going to be direction toward Christ in your life. And God uses all kinds of things in our lives to make that happen. All kinds of things. There's not just a little set list. Okay, I mean, he uses all kinds of things. In fact, I guess you would have to say, according to Romans 8.28, he uses all things. He uses everything in our lives for that purpose. Right? And so we... that And, and think of that in the purpose of Hebrews here in this passage... The point is to remind us of that so that we aren't discouraged by the difficulties in life. And that brings us to the point where we are in chapter 12 here at verse 12. All right, so let's, <clears throat> let's do this. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer first, uh, and then we'll read. Uh, I guess the best thing to do would be to read the rest of the chapter. So we'll, we'll have Pastor Brinker start at verse 12, and then we'll go around until we get to the end of chapter uh, 12, so verse 29. Um, but after, after I'll pray, and then after that, then if you'll just read that through, and that'll kind of give us a context for hopefully what we uh, look at today here. All right, so Father, we thank you for the opportunity again this morning. Pray that you'd help us as we look into your word. Help us to love you and appreciate you more and be concerned for others as well. And uh, we just pray you'd work, continue to work in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans, <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the people knees. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame turn the other way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when, the, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not coming to the mount that might be touched in that burn of fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and it's so much as not so much as it beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible is the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear it with But ye are come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to a general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. <clears throat> For if they escaped not to refuse him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For God is a consuming fire. All right. Notice verse 12, we'll just jump right in here. We're going to see some diligent duties of our faith, all right? What's the first word of verse 12? Wherefore, and of course, uh, obviously drawing, kind of like funneling down because of what's been said here. Now, what was just previously talked about in those preceding verses? That's the passage on chastening. Chaste, can't get the word out. Chastening, chastisement, all right? But God's working in his children's lives, and he's doing it for reasons, and he loves us, and, and so on. All right, then he says, wherefore? Now, it could be that it's just reflecting back on that particular idea that was presented there about chastening. It could be reflecting back even broader. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, you can necessarily... Uh, say for certain, all right, but think of this, as of that point, there's been really three illustrations that have been presented in chapter 12 so far. First, you could say there was an illustration of a runner in a race, all right, in other words, Christian life is kind of illustrated, and it's not the only place, obviously other places in the New Testament, as running a race, all right, and in those first couple verses, uh, which the point of those verses are telling us to look to Christ, but uh, in doing so, he's talking about running a race, all right, and we're to lay aside the weights, we're to uh, put away sin, all right, and then you see, secondly, you could see a little likening to uh, illustrative of a soldier fighting against sin, because in verses 3 through 4, he talks about striving against sin, all right, and if you think about it, in one way to describe the Christian life is it's a fight against sin. It's a fight against evil in this, not just, I mean, in our own lives, in, in as we strive to help others, all right? There's, there's the way that we're striving to, against sin in their lives, I mean, and even at general in this world. I mean, sin is the enemy of God in this world. And it should be looked at by God's people as their enemy. I mean, we, we could park here for a while and talk about this, but I want to move on. But just keep these illustrations in mind. Then the third is that of a, what, father and son, or father and child, all right, or a, a child in God's family. So kind of all these illustrations are used here uh, depicting what the Christian life can be likened to, what it's like, 
all right? And in so doing, in any of those, all right, in a runner in a race, in uh, a, a, a soldier, you know, fighting against an enemy, fighting against sin, as well as just being a child, being nurtured and disciplined, in any of those scenarios, it is easy, in the flesh at least, to get discouraged when things happen, right? When life happens, as life goes on. It's not always peachy and rosy. And, and I mean, you know, life is life. Life can be difficult, just to be frank. Life can be very difficult. But there is help, right? And there's hope. And notice that word then, wherefore, right? All these things. He says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. All right, so think about that. I mean, just again, here, just the picture of somebody's, I mean, the hands that hang down, you know, gives me this mindset of, you know, you just kind of, right? Feeble knees, you know, your knees are, you're you're just tired, you know. Uh, Sometimes we think of, Feeble knees, shaky knees as a, as a sign of fear, you know. Uh, and, and in fact, actually, interestingly enough, where is it? It's in Daniel, I think it is, where it talks about their uh, knees smote one another, you know. I mean, they were, they were just scared to death, you know. But, um, but think of this, okay. The, the picture is somebody that's being bogged down, somebody that's, being, that's probably weary, Tired, discouraged, all right? And the exhortation is what? Wherefore, we should do what? Lift up, all right? Now, I was thinking about this as well, and, you know, I think automatically we think this is, we're to, we're to uh, look in, in, in the context of Hebrews, we're to be considering one another, so we're to be looking out for one another, and when we see a brother who's weary, we should try to come to their aid, all right, sometimes you need to be careful in how you do that, but we should try to help them, right? Uh, at the same time, though, and, and I believe that's appropriate here, but at the same time, all right, what are we to do personally? I mean, hey, if we're getting discouraged, we should hold up our hands. We, we should strengthen our knees, all right, because of the whole point, we're to be looking to Christ, all right, and He can give us the strength we need, and uh, and then make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. All right, again, so we can have refreshment and so on here and bring that to others. But notice verse 14. I want to try to go through this part of this chapter as fast as possible. But follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Um, kind of a... And there's a lot of general principles scattered throughout here as well. But again, there's this context that it directly fits in also. But in everything in our lives, we should be striving to be at peace with people. We shouldn't be looking to pick fights. (laughs) Uh, There are some people that are trying to fight with you, maybe. I mean, that happens, right? But we should be striving for peace, following peace. Uh, Romans 14, I think it is, says, live peaceably with all men as much as lieth in you. I mean, sometimes it's impossible to avoid conflict. Sometimes, all right? But we shouldn't be the result of that. We should be striving to be at peace and 
Notice it says, follow peace with all men and what? Holiness. So the idea doesn't have a, a verb with holiness, so to speak, but it's an understood, same as the other, follow. We should be following holiness in our lives. That is a never-ending and never, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, something we should never lose sight of in our Christian lives. It should be, our Christian lives should be described by the word holiness. That's, that's what is true for every Christian. It should be holy in our lives. We should be following holiness. Now, holiness, sanctification is, is the same word. Um, you know, there's different lights on that that the Bible presents, okay, and I don't want to take a lot of time here, but there's a way in which you have been sanctified when you were saved, all right? You've been set apart. I mean, all these, all these uh, the word holy, the word sanctified, the word set apart, they're all the same thing, okay? Um, same word. Um, you've been set apart. You've been made holy. There's a way in which that's true in your life, all right? Then there is coming a time when you will have complete, final sanctification, if you want to call it. All right? When we are with the Lord after this physical life, there will be a total holiness that's in our lives. But the Bible also presents this concept of something that during this life here, we are to be pursuing. We're to, I mean, we shouldn't have the idea, oh, one day I'll be holy, so that doesn't matter right now. No, it does matter in a lot of ways, okay? And, and remember, that's part of why God is working in your life in the matter of chastening, nurturing, because he's trying to bring about holiness and true righteousness in our lives, all right? So the point is, though, although God is at work bringing that about, our attitude, our mindset should be that we are following it. We're pursuing holiness in our lives, all right? That's... That's our responsibility. So it is true that if you're saved, God's made you holy. All right? And that's more of a positional thing because of your relationship in Christ. God looks at you and He treats you that way in your standing before Him. Same, same thing as being justified. And, you know, I mean, same thing. He treats you that way. doesn't mean in your day-to-day -day life you actually are that in our state of living but you're standing before him is that way. And ultimately, because of what God's going to do and what he is doing, what he's going to do, ultimately, one day, that will be an actual reality in our lives. But our responsibility right now in this life is that we're to be pursuing holiness. All right, so keep those things in mind. Now, notice verse 15, looking diligently. This is not, I mean, I haven't counted, okay? But there's numerous times we've seen in the book of Hebrews so far this concept, right? That we're to be looking diligently. We're to be considering. We're to be, you know, watching. We're, I mean, this is, this is an ongoing mindset that we see here, right? We're to be looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now, just as a principle here, think about this. How is it that as a Christian you can pursue peace? How is it that as a Christian you can pursue holiness? Only through the grace of God. 
And grace is something that is given by God. It's, it's God providing what we need. He's, he's giving help. All right? It's not something we deserve. In fact, we never deserve it. But God is provi- He's the one that provides it. He offers it. But you'll notice that the continual truth is as well, okay? He offers it, but we have to come get it. We have, I mean, it's not like he, you know, uh, maybe your kids sometimes, you know, they need some medicine, they need some help, and so you're going to find a way to get it in them, okay? Now, maybe in a way you could say he finds a way, but, but the, what I'm saying is our responsibility continual, again, throughout the New Testament, is our responsibility is we're, be, we're to be looking for that grace. We're to be watching for it, you know, praying for it and running to it, all right? Back in chapter 4, remember the statement, we're to come boldly under the throne of grace so that we can find mercy and what? Grace to help in time of need, in time of like temptation to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 13 talks about God provides a way to escape. But he doesn't necessarily lasso you and drag you through that exit. But we we are to be looking for it, right? That's our responsibility. And so throughout this life, we're to be looking diligently for God's grace in every situation. Now, that's not always easy to do because sometimes we get so caught up in the circumstance that we forget to look for the grace to overcome that circumstance. And so we need to constantly be looking diligently for that, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And then there's a second negative purpose, not just so that we don't fail to obtain God's grace, but so that we don't, so that we don't all right, let any root of bitterness in. This is a whole nother, again, you could spend a lot of time on this, but we're... Uh, just had to present this quickly this morning, but think about this. We're to be looking diligently so that we don't become bitter. Now, keep in mind the whole context again, right? This is a, a situation of people that are facing difficulties, right? Being encouraged to look to Christ and God's at work in their lives. It may be the uh, uh, discouraging chastening, so to speak. I mean, but you, you see the point, all right? We're, it can be easy to become bitter over things that happen to us. And we need to be careful in that. All right? And again, we, we could spend a lot of time on that, but I'm, I'm trying to press on here. So these diligent duties of our faith, we see this here. And then he gives an interesting example here, and I'm not going to get much into this right now again because of time right now, but he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. And then he brings in, again, to me, in this context, this kind of an interesting example of somebody here, all right, as far as the context goes, is what I'm getting at. He brings in a a fellow by the name of Esau. Everybody's familiar with who Esau is, right? Isaac's oldest twin son, all right? They were twins, but Esau, Esau was born before Jacob, all right? Um, but, um, and in the, in the contrast, okay, between 
Esau and Jacob, obviously there's a contrast there. Esau pictures somebody who basically just was a carnal person. It was just about this life. Jacob, not necessarily because of him and, and his actions, but because of God's plan, okay? Uh, Jacob, I want to be careful how I word this, but Jacob was destined, if you want to say, to be the pro- progenitor of the line of Christ, right? Now, and God elected Jacob for that purpose. And in the book of Malachi, you know, you see that expression, Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved, but in the context, it's talking about God's choosing of Jacob for the messianic line, right? It's not necessarily talking about his personal salvation, personal relationship with God, but it's talking about choosing his line. Um, So, again, there's a whole lot in in that, but he uses Esau here as an example of somebody who was fleshly and apparently bitter. And it's interesting to me, I think everybody's probably familiar enough with the story, right? Jacob flees for his life after he and his, based on his mom's motivating, but he deceives his father and gets the blessing instead of Esau because Isaac had intended to give it to Esau, right? But Esau had actually, even previous to that, forfeited because of a fleshly desire, uh, just wanting food, right? Not necessarily immoral, but wanting food, um, but putting the temporary as more important than the, the long term, all right, he gave up willingly at that point his birthright to Jacob. And then later, Jacob steals, if we can say it that way, the blessing that went along with that, all right, from their father. And Esau obviously was upset over that. Um, but and 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 throughout and it's interesting to me that at the time that then that Jacob returns to uh, Canaan and uh, you remember Esau comes to meet him and it, it almost seems like they make some reconciliation there, but I think in the long term it's clear that they did not because Esau's descendants had a deep-seated bitterness and hatred toward Israel down through the centuries. It's interesting, I think it's Psalm 137 that talks about uh, when the Babylonians came and took Jerusalem, how the Edomites were just rejoicing. And the Edomites, of course, Esau's descendants. And, and it's like they were cheering it. In fact, that, that, that Psalm, I can't think of the verses exactly there, but talk about how they shouted, raise it, raise it, in the sense of, you know, destroy it. I mean, it's interesting, that, that relationship there and, and all of that. But bitterness, again, bitterness is a very serious thing, and we need to be careful in that. And we need to be careful that we never get the mindset, oh, I will never become bitter. If, if we have that mindset, most likely we will become bitter. And so, again, it's part of this whole idea of looking diligently, right? We need to be very careful. All right, 
um, we got to hasten too. All right, so um, again, the words about Esau here, let me just read them and, and move on. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. Again, it's interesting he says fornicator and profane person. We don't necessarily have record that Esau was some kind of, you know, uh, disgusting, sinful man. But the idea of his life was, it was just this life. It was, he was wrapped up in, in the temporal things of this life, and that was his focus. All right? Um, he married some Canaanite women, and maybe that has something to do with that statement that's here or whatever. But interestingly enough, even after that, after he realized that that displeased his parents, later then he, he marries, uh, takes some other wives, but he, he marries uh, somebody from the line of Ishmael, which would be in Abraham's descendants, right? I mean, it's like, so he tried to do better, so to speak, but again, but the whole picture of Esau's life is, is just of this life. It's not of eternity and, and so on. Okay, so, um, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for you know how that afterwards when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For When it says he would, the would there is the idea of he wanted. He desired, okay, uh, to receive that blessing, obviously. Um, he was rejected, uh, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Even though he cried about it, 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 it couldn't change the circumstances. There. Anyway, me, um, and then notice verse 18, all right? Verse 18 through 28, some people lumped this whole thing. Uh, we had previously mentioned that there was a fifth warning passage. Remember, we've seen four so far in the book of Hebrews. Serious Warning passages. Um, and there's a fifth one here in chapter 12. Some people include these verses beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter in this warning. And, and in a way, yes, you can. Um, the specific warning itself is more in verses 25 through 28. But uh, I wouldn't say that these are totally unrelated to it. But you'll see here another comparison made uh, here, and I've, uh, in, in the outline, um, called this the destination for or from our faith. In other words, where are we headed, so to speak? All right, where's our faith taking us? Uh, that's the, the idea of what I mean by that. But notice the comparison that's made in these verses, all right? Uh, you've read them, but for we are not come unto the mount that might be touched, all right? And then there's a description here. We'll get back to that in a second. Now notice verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Sion, all right? So there's a comparison here between two mountains, so to speak, all right? And uh, the first one being Sinai, Mount Sinai. Now, when we think of Mount Sinai, what do we associate that with? Moses, the Old Testament system, and as in the context of Hebrews, what? The Old Covenant, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. So a lot of things that have been treated in the book of Hebrews, right? So, I mean, what I'm getting at, there's a fitting comparison that's being drawn here in this in this passage all right this is everything that hebrews has talked about so far that jesus is superior to all right now notice the description you're not coming to the mouth that might be touched in other words physically it was a physical place here on this earth all right they could literally touch it all right and go there uh, in fact, they were camped at the bottom of it, camped around, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words. Which voice? 
They that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. All right, this goes back to uh, Exodus chapter 19. Remember there when the Israelites had come and they came to the the foot of Mount Sinai, all right, and they were probably camped there for many months, number of months now. And Moses went up on the mount, all right, to meet with God twice, actually, um, for 40 days at a time, all right? So, I mean, this is some weeks, some period of time that they're there, all right? And in Exodus 19, it records a verbal giving of the law, of the Ten Commandments, all right? Um, And you remember the scene there. I mean, it talked about how the mountain was burning. I mean, there was smoke. I mean, this is is some impressive, terrible in the sense of an awesome sight and probably scary. What would you think of if, I mean... in our day, we might associate it with, okay, this is a volcano or something. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, that kind of an idea, that kind of a picture, a mountain that's burning and smoking. And I mean, that's not something that is like cuddly and lovey. And that, I mean, that, that puts fear in you. That's, that's the point, okay? And God is saying to the people, all right, I am holy, you're not but I'm going to show you a way that you can ceremonially approach me. And that's what then the whole giving of everything in Exodus and Leviticus and all that stuff, right? I mean, but notice the the comparison here, all right? In fact, their response when God spoke after God gave the Ten Commandments, their response was what? Don't talk to us anymore. They wanted Moses to go up and God talk to him, then Moses come and tell them what God said. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what they said, right? Because they were afraid, and rightly so. But it's interesting that here Hebrews records Moses as saying that he said, I exceedingly fear and quake. (laughs) I mean, this was fearful for Moses. All right, so this was a fearful thing, okay? Now notice, again, the comparison, the whole context of Hebrews, this passage, right? That's that stuff. That's not where we're at, people. That's what he's saying. But you, we are come, verse 22, unto Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Some believe that this is a, it's a, giving a list of, what, of some of the things anyway that, are, that is in heaven. And that's probably true. I don't think that's the, necessarily the, the direct emphasis in its context. It's making a comparison between, again, the old and the new. All right? This is what we have in Jesus. That's what they had in the Old Testament law. And remember, part of the whole point of the book of Hebrews is encouraging Hebrew believers 
to keep on looking and following Jesus, looking at him in faith, right? But yet also those that were not really there, but were, they were mixed in, but they weren't really personally committed to Christ to, I mean, encourage them, you know, step over the line, commit, get in there, right? Um, and those warning passages, warning about coming close but missing Christ, all right? We haven't got to the actual warning here quite yet in verse 25, but this is, again, it's, it's laying the groundwork for that, making that comparison. This is what they had. This is what's available. What are you going to choose? All right? And there's quite a drastic comparison between the two things that are given, right? One is like a total list of fearful things. The other is a total list of just wonderful things. I mean, and, and in reality, that's the choice. But yet people are often burdened down by their you know, religious superstition, so to speak, that they won't commit to Christ. And pride. I mean, there, there's an, un, probably a, an unending list of things that keep people from Christ. But this is the idea here, all right? Come to Him. Come to Him, all right? And uh, anyway, let me, let me press on here. I think we can finish this, all right? Here, verse 25 then, 25 through 28, you see this um, actual warning here, all right? And there's other things I would have liked to talk about in this, in this passage, but time forbids here, all right? So verses 25 through 29, you see this actual warning set out. This is the last one, last, this is the number five of five here in the book of Hebrews, um, he says, see that ye refuse not. Well, that's some pretty strong-sounding language, isn't it? See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? Again, the point here is not warning Christians that they can lose their salvation. It's warning people who are mingled in, who are, you know, they're, they're taking part, but they're not saved. They haven't crossed the threshold, as we view that illustration about, you know, coming up, pulling in to the church parking lot. Are you in church? I mean, you know, uh, but... There's a, there's a point in time when somebody crosses the threshold into salvation, and that, that is faith in Christ that does that. There's, all, there's various things that maybe are used to prepare a person to that point, but there will be a point where they cross that threshold, enter the door, and come in to Christ. All right? And... As we've looked at, I mean, I think the, the, the easiest to see example of somebody getting so close but not getting in, if I can word it that way, is one we looked at when we were looking at the warning back in chapter 6, Judas Iscariot. He had all kinds of opportunity, 
all kinds of spiritual experience. He preached with the other apostles. According to the Gospels, it would seem that he cast out devils, did some miraculous things, as well as, you know, along with the other apostles. But he was not a saved man. That's a, that's, that's a serious thing to think about. I mean... I can't remember exactly the title of it, but I remember thinking about it afterwards and I came up with my own idea and, and I, I started working on a message about it. But e. L., I heard E.L. Bynum preach a, a message about something to the effect, okay, again, this may not be the exact title, but, but kissing the door of heaven and missing, I, something to that effect, okay? And I got to thinking about that. You know, there's a perfect illustration. Now, his, his illustration wasn't Judas in that message, but... Judas, at the very last opportunity that Jesus gave him there, in the garden, when Judas was bringing the mob, right? He came, he, you know, the different Gospels record some different words, because, and you know, all of what is recorded is what was said, but, you know, Jesus says, calls him friend. He's still giving him opportunity to change his course. He comes and does what? Kisses Jesus. An act of friendship, but it was done out of betrayal because that was the sign that he had given, right? The, of, so he didn't even have to come and say this is, you know, he just came, kissed Jesus and walked away and then the, the mob did their thing. But think about that. He was, he had... Such closeness, but yet missed the grace of God. And we must be careful of that. All right? Um, So this warning, you see this here. Similar to previous warnings of the epistle, here we see the warning that if it, it was a serious matter to offend God and His Word given indirectly and in veiled manners throughout the Old Testament, how much more serious is it to turn a deaf ear to his revelation in Christ and his offer of salvation in him? Very, very serious thing. All right? It's interesting, the word used here, refuse, in verse 25. Um, obviously, the word, like most words, has a little range of meaning, all right? The, the word literally means to make a request. This is an interesting concept, if you think about this, all right? That's literally the the meaning of the word, to make a request, but it can be like a positive thing or a negative thing. So like the negative idea of that is to to make a request as to be excused from something. Or literally, sometimes, in fact, it's translated this way, to make an excuse. In fact, we don't have time to turn there, in, in... Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, the words used in both verse 18 and verse 19, and there it's the idea where the, the one invited the guest to the wedding, and it says they began with one accord to make excuse. That's the same word that's used here. Um, in, uh, uh, in Acts 25, in one of Paul's defenses before some, some governorships there and so on, he, he, he mentions something, if I be guilty, I refuse not to die. Same word here. In other words, he's saying, I'm not making an excuse, right? If, if I'm guilty, I'm willing to, to die is what Paul was saying, but he knew he wasn't guilty of what he was being accused of. So 
Uh, anyway, there's other examples. I don't have time to give them all here. But that's the idea of this word. So it's like, all right, if you have this opportunity, you come to Christ, but you come up with some excuse to not choose Christ. That's the idea. That's a fearful thing is what he's saying. And we, we, we should be, in, in reality, we should be scared to death of that. Now, again, if you're saved, you're clinging to Christ, all right? Your faith is in him. But someone who's in that wavering, they should be extremely fearful. There were very serious consequences then, and how much more so now is what the warning is saying. God spoke from an earthly mountain then, but he speaks from heaven now. And uh, again, this, this, but in this then, notice how it ends, okay? And I've got to stop, but uh, verse 28, Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. It, in a way, it does seem to open more of a general door as well to including believers that, you know what, we need to be careful and we need to serve God acceptably. And we should do it with fear. Our God is a consuming fire. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that God is holy. It's serious business. And the only reason we can approach a holy God is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we are so cute and lovable. But, you know, kind of like that idea everybody looks at a puppy, oh, so cute and kittens you know they're cute kittens are cute I'll be honest but the problem with kittens is what they turn into cats all right uh, but anyway but we should have the right obviously faith in Christ it's an interesting thing all right it gives us boldness to approach but yet we still should be careful we're treading on holy ground I guess is kind of maybe a way to say it all right? Our God is a consuming fire. It's serious. So be sure you're saved. Be sure you're trusting Christ and nothing else. Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, again, this passage in the book of Hebrews. As uh, We've seen, again, just more great truth from your word. But help us now to, uh, again, be sure that we're trusting Christ, nothing else. But help us to be careful that we're looking diligently for your grace in our lives so we can be following peace and holiness as you would have us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.